Hey everyone, welcome to the Wealth Investment Podcast. I've got a guest here, Joel Block from Bullseye Capital. Thanks for joining us today, Joel. Hey Brian, long time. How are, how are you? Things are going well, man. It has been a long time. It's been too long. Congratulations on the move out to Colorado. Well, thanks. It's, uh, you know, people have asked, you know, if I miss anything about California, the answer is no. <laughs> I really don't. Really don't miss much about it at all. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've been curious about this new um, advantage players concept that you that you have. I don't know if it's a concept or if it's more than that. Can you tell us a little bit about yeah what an advantage player is? Yeah, of course. You know, one of the things that you know you probably maybe you know about this, maybe you don't, but people don't know about this in general. You know, I started my career, you know, they think my career started when I was at Price Waterhouse doing taxes, but actually before that in college, I actually learned to be a professional blackjack player. And I was really in the top echelon of the game in the world. And I played on one of the top teams in the world. We'd go into Las Vegas. I play solo. I play on teams and we took money out of those casinos. And, you know, then the rest of my career I've spent on that giant casino on Wall Street, you know, which is kind of fun. But here's the thing about advantage play is the casinos actually call people who could beat their unbeatable games. They call them advantage players. And, and I was referred to as an advantage player because I played at the top of the game and I could beat those casinos, which they don't like, as you, as you know, for movies and other kinds of things. So, you know, for me, an advantage player is somebody who plays at the top of their game. They do what others don't do. They see what others don't see. They know what others don't know. And for limited partners, for sure, they want to associate themselves with advantage players, people who really are at the top of the game. Aaron, and just by way of example, you know, you got seven people sitting in a blackjack table. Six of the people don't know what day of the week it is, what time of the day, what they have for dinner, what they're doing for lunch. They don't know anything that's happening around them. And one guy sitting at the table knows so much about what's happening that he knows what card is coming next. And think about the situational awareness that most people have. Most people are more like the six people. They don't know what time of the day it is. They don't know anything happening around them. They just kind of float through life and they're lucky to get from point A to point B. But advantage players really understand the game. They really kind of slide through life. They kind of glide and understand the rules of the game. And those are the kind of people you want to affiliate with. So to me, advantage player is, is really somebody who plays at the top of the game and those are the guys you want to be with. So if I'm a limited partner trying to seek out one of those advantage players, how would I go about doing that? How do I know, you know, is there some sort of track record or success leaving clues or how would you go about trying to figure out who those folks are? Well, I, I think that's really what the whole discussion we're going to have for the show is. I mean, I think that's really, you know, kind of what we need to discuss is that, you know, first of all, the limited partner has to have a sense about what it is that he or she wants to accomplish. And, and that's, you know, listen, they, some people like certain kind of asset classes better than others. So they might like multifamily, they might like development, they might like institutional type of investing where margins are smaller and returns are less, but there's less risk. I mean, so they have to, you know, the first thing that you have to do is you have to have a really good sense about who you are and what your own risk tolerances are. I mean, you have to have, you know, some really good insight about who you are. You can't evaluate another person until you really know what works for you. And once you do, then you can kind of put yourself on the track to thinking about, you know, is this person an advantage player who could deliver for me what matters to me? Okay. Yeah, I know we've talked about this a lot in the past, but entrepreneurs tend to be kind of 
stupid in a lot of ways. You know, they want to be lone wolves. They want to be out there doing everything on their own. How does some of that tie into, you know, what an advantage player would do? Are they able to recruit a better team or like how do they organize themselves to be able to outcompete other people that are after the same opportunities that they are? Well, first of all, advantage players have a certain amount of clarity. They operate with, with a variety of strategies that other people may or may not operate with. So for, let's say, for example, that, you know, you know that you want to operate in the multifamily space, or you want to operate in the fix and flip space or wherever it is that you operate, you have to have a very clear business plan about what it is you want to do. And here's a really big difference between professional investors that make their living by picking investments and retail investment, which is everybody else. And that's about 2% of the people are professional people and 98% of the people are not. The difference is that retail investors buy things and they hope that it goes up. Advantage players and professional investors know when they buy something exactly what they're buying and exactly what's going to happen if they execute a certain business plan against it. And that's really what you have to be looking for when you're evaluating a professional investor is how crystal clear is this person? Can they explain it to you in a way that makes sense? Can they explain it to you clearly so that you kind of catch on to what's going on so you can ask them questions? And all of that to me makes a very big difference and it really creates the kind of relationship that you want to have with a promoter. And if you can't have that kind of relationship, then I'd be wary about the relationship going forward. Because if you don't kind of, if you don't catch on to how they operate now, you're certainly not going to get how they work in the future. Right. A lot of that ties into a value add strategy. So that being able to identify something that's underperforming or mismanaged or is not being executed the right way, they can purchase it, hopefully at a discount and then be able to add some value to it and be able to generate right. and, and there's, some. There's other value add strategies beside those. I mean, so, you know, one thing is you find things that are undermanaged and you bring them up to, uh, up to speed. But, you know, the other thing is that, you know, uh, let's say for example, what's really become popular are these roll-up strategies. These, and they are, that's called, it's called a creative value where you're adding value in a different way. So let's say, for example, you buy a mobile home park and it's undermanaged or it's not professionally managed. Well, the larger private equity outfits aren't buying those because they just don't have the energy to turn those things around. But if you're a small operator, you might think about putting those deals together and then you, know, you bundle up a bunch of these non-professionally managed deals and you professionalize them. And by the time you get your package together, that package is worth a lot more than it would have been before. That's true for uh, laundromats. That's true for dry cleaners. It's true for car washes. The Wall Street Journal just did a report on car washes recently. The private equity companies are buying them because they want the cash flow. And these are big cash flowing assets. So it's, it's not limited only, Brian, to, you know, value out and fix and flip on houses or, you know, raising the rents of an apartment building. It could be, there are many strategies. And the trick is advantage players are able to articulate their strategy. They know exactly what they're doing, why they're doing it. And they can describe it with great clarity and ease. And if your promoter can't do that, then you need to think about whether that's the right person for you to affiliate with or not. Yeah. So what do sponsors or promoters normally get wrong in this process and their path to trying to be an advantage player? Well, first of all, they try to be everything to everybody. I mean, that, that by yeah. itself is, is a terrible mistake. I mean, if you say we're going to buy, you know, whatever we find, wherever we find it anywhere in the United States, I mean, that's not a success formula. 
And investors typically get turned off by that sort of thing. A lot of investors, you know, just, they, they really want to do what they understand. Listen, I understand multifamily. I understand Los Angeles. I understand Austin. I understand whatever city you're in. Let's work on those cities. And, you know, if you're describing some kind of an opportunity that is too broad, that is too unwieldy, then people just won't say yes. And the goal, of course, right. is to get them to say yes. And so you have to, you know, really think through that and be clear about it. Yeah. And I know this is a constant struggle for syndicators or sponsors too, when they're putting together their offering is they want to have it be as, you know, as flexible as, as it can be to be able to take advantages of opportunities as they see them, but they want to leave it confined enough where they're really specializing the things that they're good at. So it allows them to track capital. How should people that are limited partners think about those sorts of arrangements? the capital arrangements as they're evaluating it, evaluating opportunities. Well, those two things are not mutually exclusive, you know, saying that this is the asset class that we're going after, and this is the type of property we're looking for B-class properties that meet these kinds of criteria in these kinds of areas. And the area, the geography can be a little bigger than, than a city. It could be a state, it could be a region, you know, as long as the asset class is well-defined and as long as you have both knowledge of the area where you're buying and also the wherewithal to manage the properties in those areas, because that's part of the problem. If you don't have a footprint in a territory, it's very difficult to successfully manage a property. Now you can hire third-party management, but you know, we all know what third-party management is and it's frequently not all that great. So you really have to be very clear. I would define your asset class first, your geography second, but if you don't have a footprint, you know, be wary. So how does this normally show up in the capital costs for sponsors? If I'm a limited partner and somebody's offering me some, you know, really high preferred return or something that seems a little out of the ordinary, how should I think about that when I'm evaluating opportunities? Well, first of all, you know, like anything in life, if it looks too good to be true, then it probably is. And if the preferred return is much below seven and much above nine, that's probably uh, an indication. The promoter is maybe a junior person who doesn't know an awful lot about what they're doing because they're offering more so they can attract some capital or they just are uh, in a funny position for whatever reason. So number one, I would, I would say that there's kind of a bracket that kind of works. Below seven, investors don't need guys like us. They don't need private promoters because they can go to safer investments with larger companies. But when you start getting into the seven, eight, nine category, you really need to have some exposure to real estate and some alternative assets that you just can't get in some of these institutional deals. And then as far as, uh, you know, profit sharing, I mean, the amount of the split should really be determined by the amount of work that the promoter's doing. So if the promoter's managing a AAA apartment building, then maybe five or 10% is enough for the promoter. But if the promoter is, you know, doing a rehab or doing a development deal, it's not uncommon for the promoter to split 50-50 with the investors, because if it weren't for that promoter, that promoter, you know, the, the deal wouldn't get done at all. But the aggregate amount of return rarely exceeds 15% between the preferred and the, and the split. It rarely exceeds 15%. If somebody's telling you it's more than 15%, be very wary. I find that to be very suspicious. It's not to say that there couldn't be an irregular situation one time where you get a windfall. But you cannot count on a windfall over and over and over again. 
And, uh, you know, greed has gotten the best of a lot of well-heeled people. And that's what enables people like Bernie Madoff and other people to be successful is that they prey on greed and other things. So to me, seven and nine is a preferred is a really good number. And you'll never see more than, than 15 being offered. And, and even that's a high number. So, you know, to me, those are kind of the brackets where you ought to be thinking. Yeah. And as people are evaluating sponsors or, you know, trying to figure out are, are these true advantage players for a given asset class, what are the types of things that they should do when they're evaluating sponsors? Should they do background checks? Should they, you know, look through the pro formos in detail? I mean, a lot of people probably aren't sophisticated enough to see where all of the, the skeletons might lie in a deal. Should they talk to professionals or like, what, what is your recommendation for investors? Yeah. This is a tough area because I'm not a big fan of pro formas because promoters are, are well known to doctor up pro formas to make them look the way they want them to look. So that's not really necessarily a great benchmark because these are private deals. You don't really have visibility into what the reality is of all the deals that a person has done going backwards. They only share their better deals or the best ones that they've done. So that's problematic. To me, the best way to get connected to these kinds of people is by referral, either referral of one of their clients or of a professional person who probably knows them. To me, those are always the best ways to create these kinds of relationships. Right. And I know there's definitely work involved in valuing the sponsors. What is your recommendation to folks as they're growing a relationship? Do you recommend to limited partners to maybe start small with a smaller investment and ratchet that up over time? Or how do you think about that? Well, I think it depends on the total size of your investment pool. You're going to put some percentage of your assets into liquid assets. You're going to put some of it into stock market assets. You're going to probably put some into bond assets. You might put some of it into alternative assets like real estate. And you really have to think carefully. And it's not for me to tell a person how to do their allocation or how to think through that sort of thing. But I would say that you want to be very careful and you want to do what's in the best interest of your family. And you probably need some professional assistance to think through that. Just remember, I will tell you to remember this though. People who are licensed to deal in the stock market have a natural predisposition that leans away from real estate because real estate is considered an alternative asset and an alternative asset is not stocks, bonds, or mutual funds. It's anything that's not a stock bond or mutual fund. Right. And the reason that that's important is because stockbrokers get compensated on stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. They don't necessarily get compensated when you buy something that is outside of that bucket. So if you say to somebody, listen, why don't you move 20% of all your assets out of your brokerage firm and into a real estate transaction, they're going to call their broker and say, yeah, I'm thinking about moving 20% of my assets out of our brokerage firm. Well, that broker secretly is thinking, wait a second, I get paid based on the total value of the assets that are under my control, under my management. And if you take 20% away, that's less for my family. So you really have to be aware of the hidden agenda that they have and what they might be thinking. And I'm not saying that all financial advisors are self-serving, but plenty enough are that you need to at least think, might they be thinking about themselves or might they be thinking about me? Yeah, and that's a definite thing. I and mean, we had Scott Hendricks on as our first guest on this podcast. And to get anything private through, you know, uh, so he's able to sell it as a registered investment advisor, it has to go through a whole compliance check and a back office and the this and the that. And, you know, the inherent bias there is to not 
allow sponsors or allow brokers who are potentially representing sponsors or, you know, helping to assisting to sell securities from sponsors to allow him to be able to do that. So that's something that listeners definitely should think about. And, you know, my experience has tended to be that some of those private opportunities are offered because enough people are asking for them. But it tends to be the people that are really, really seasoned and have big funds. And back to the earlier part of our conversation, a lot of the juice is sort of squeezed out of the deal for the opportunities that are allowed to pass through that filter. So I don't know how you think about that. You know, I, I was, yeah. I was talking to an alum of the uh, symposium, the syndication hedge fund symposium program that I run that you've been to many times. And this guy actually went to work for a pretty large syndicator. So he, he actually runs, uh, you know, a pretty big area. And, and these guys, they raise about $250 million a month. They're a machine and they've just got all these broker dealers all over the country raising money for them. But their load, they're, you won't believe this, their load is approaching 15%. Wow. Because they're paying 10 or 12% to the broker dealers for raising the money. And they've got their other costs, whatever those costs are. Individual guys like us, we don't typically have those expenses. And consequently, our load tends to be somewhere between 2 and 5%. So it's a very small load. The load being the commissions on the front end for somebody to come in. It's very, very small because we don't really pay commissions. But these other broker-dealer guys. So when you start dealing with these large institutional broker-dealers and these large institutional outfits, it may appear safer, but they're part of the reason that the returns are so much lower is because in order for them to raise their capital, they're paying broker dealers enormous sums of money to do it for them. And that, uh, that really just eats into the profits. And, you know, unless you're doing a substantial value add deal, it's very difficult to make up 15 points, very, very difficult to make up that kind of load. And most of the deals they're doing are not really value add deals. So they just kind of linger and they hope there's some appreciation in the economy. But if there's not, you're going to come out upside down and that's not going to work out well for anyone. Right. Well, thanks, Joel. You want to tell our listeners a little bit about what you've got going on and how they can get in touch with you? Yeah. Thanks. You know, listen, uh, a big part of, you know, what we do is we educate promoters on how to be great promoters and how to put deals together that are investor friendly and that are really fair and work for everyone. And, you know, and, and, and I've spent my career in the venture capital and the hedge fund businesses, and I'm, I'm available to chat if somebody needs something and they can go to, uh, bullseyecap.com and, and they can find me and that's probably the best place. Okay. Well, thanks again for your time today and coming on and we'll have to get together for another one of these. We'll do it. All right. Thanks so much.